0: It was obviously like incredibly daunting because we didn't quite know how we were going to do it, but we managed to. We had a couple of days where we literally worked throughout the the dance of it, essentially.
1: Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Awardist Podcast from Entertainment Weekly, where we take you to the front lines of the Oscar race with this year's biggest contenders for the industry's top awards. I'm David Canfield, EW's Movies Editor, joined as always by my co-host Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hello Clarissa!
2: Hello, good morning.
1: And joining us yet again is our fellow resident awards <laughs> expert, Joey Nolfi. Hello, Joey. You sounded so exasperated when you said that yet again.
2: <laughs> uh, We're just tired uh, from award season in general.
1: I and know. Tired and tired of me. And it
2: just, they're if, never if tired Joey, of you, Joey. If Joey has they're to come
1: back, that. that means we have to have some more arguments. It's like, am I ready for that? <laughs> um, just get on the Penguin Bloom train and then we don't have to
3: argue. Oh, that,
2: that train has left. That Joey. train left. That train has no. Left. It didn't stop. It. It's now a boat. It's
1: changed modes of transportation. That's not even nominated. not even Razzie nominated.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, last night was the SAG Awards, and we are uh, all here to discuss that. Holy Spectacle, which shook up the Oscar race in almost every conceivable way. Um, And later we have an interview with Vanessa Kirby, who was SAG-nominated and is Oscar-nominated for Best Actress for her harrowing performance in Pieces of a Woman, which you can stream on Netflix. Um, But first, let's get into SAG. Um, And maybe we just start with Best Actress while we're there. Um, I think that there was a sense that this was where Carey Mulligan would emerge at long last as the frontrunner in a very... (gasps) Open seeming category, and that did not happen. Viola Davis won. Um Joey, Clarissa, what do we make of this?
3: Mm,
1: it just kills me. I mean, Carrie, I mean, I love Viola
3: Davis. We all love Viola Davis. Uh and I'm never going to complain about Viola Davis winning something, but this just kills me because Carrie was showing up everywhere. But I think the race is still too wide open to consider her a front runner anymore. I mean, I was feeling good about her showing up literally everywhere as most of these actresses have. But because the film itself was performing so well, getting a best director nod, showing up at DGA, PGA, BAFTA, although Carrie didn't show up at BAFTA, um, in so many above-the-line categories, I was convinced that Carrie's performance was the one to beat because there are a lot of stuff that like men who don't want to love this film because they feel targeted, I feel like, but the obligatory <laughs> vote I'm that right. they would cast, I feel like it makes sense that they would vote for Carrie. Um, but it just seems like the industry is is shifting away from her here. Um, I, you
2: know, I've, I I kind of like it because uh, so many times these Oscar races are so predictable throughout the season. I think this gives us something to talk about. I, I think the Best Actress race is so. I feel like it's so wide open. Um, and you know they're all good performances. So I don't. I'm not mad at any of it.
1: In in this case too, you have uh, so many past. Winners competing: Viola, Frances McDormand at the sort of top of that ticket, and in the case of someone like Carrie Mulligan, I agree with you, Joey. It's it's sort of bizarre how that movie is really connected, almost in a in every way other than her. Like yeah. Emerald Fennell winning original screenplay with the Writers Guild was a pretty big surprise over a trial of Chicago Seven, mm-hmm. um, and the film looks pretty well positioned, I think, for that Oscar as well. Emerald Fennell getting in for director, uh, let yeah. alone, um, you know, I don't think she really has a shot to win that, but that alone mm-hmm. is a huge uh, accomplishment for that film. But Carrie, who is the face of that movie and was really the headline of that movie, I mean, especially out of Sundance. Yeah. Right. I don't feel like right. anybody was talking about that movie outside of Carrie's performance. But at this point, you have to wonder if the, the love for the movie almost, not outshines the love for her performance, but if it really is an overall affection for the film, that versus
3: just, her being the segue into the film for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that that was
1: probably where the misread was, was, yeah. Oh my God, look at all these places. It's popping up. Um, mm-hmm. and that hasn't, that hasn't really translated in the way that we have often seen, I mean, you know, SAG nominated Ma Rainey for best ensemble. We knew that they were fans of the movie. I do think that that helped Viola uh, a lot. Um, but let's talk about that category as you see it now. I saw a comparison was made to Denzel Washington winning for Fences a couple of years ago at SAG before losing the Oscar to Casey mm-hmm. Affleck. Viola Davis mm-hmm. was also in Fences, of course. Um, you know, there are cases where the SAG winner does not overlap in a in a tight race. I don't know if this race is tight so much mm-hmm. as it is just very unformed. Yes,
3: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. completely. I mean, who is it? <laughs> are, I mean, across the same, pe- like the 10-year period, I think the stat is eight. I always like to go by 10 years because I feel like that's enough time for the, the voting base to be relatively the same. And I think in the last 10 years, eight best actress winners at SAG have jumped to the Oscars. The only two that didn't were Glenn Close for The Wife and Viola Davis, funnily enough, for The Help. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, and in both instances, I think if you look at Olivia Coleman and it was Meryl, Meryl Streep, right, that, that yeah. won, I mean, those are kind of. I mean, I would argue that maybe at the time, Olivia Colman, her star was maybe a bit bigger than Glenn's. And Meryl obviously is like a Hollywood icon. So I don't know if there's anything to read into there. Um, but I mean, I, I don't know. I feel like Carrie and Viola are both pretty well established as like prestige actresses. So I, I, I don't know if there's really a precedent to, to compare this one to. Hmm.
2: Yeah, it's well, hard. I mean, maybe it is something about, you know, not wanting to award actresses who have won recently. So maybe that'll still give Carrie um, an edge because it's, you know, with Andre yeah. Day winning um, Golden Globes and then and then he, this happening at SAG. I, I just I just feel like there's it's hard. It's really hard to predict right now. And in this race, that is kind of like no other. I I I still think it's right. I, I would be really um, afraid to make a definitive statement right now about it.
1: Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I think Viola is definitely in it in a way we definitely did not think a week ago. Um, Carrie is certainly not out of the conversation. You can't really conceivably call her a front runner right now. Yeah. But to me, I, I like where Andre Day is positioned in this category right now. Mm-hmm. Um, she kind of reminds me, her trajectory reminds me a little bit of Regina King's For Feel Beale Street Could Talk a couple of years ago, um, where it was a movie that the Academy did not go for otherwise and SAG did not go for at all. Regina King, I think, was the first actress in a very long time to win that Oscar category without being nominated for the SAG award. Um, And so in the case of Andra too, she's she's not facing a clear front runner. And that was really what helped Regina King was, I think there was a lot of conversation around Amy Adams and Vice that just never materialized. And she was able to sort of establish herself outside of SAG. And Andra Day winning the Golden Globe and having that late breaking momentum, I think really helps her.
3: Yeah, I think we also have to consider that, I mean, SAG is very, in some ways, it's really isolated uh, from the rest of the Academy uh, because it is just actors. And um, so, I mean, while there is a lot of crossover, I mean, they still do think in a sort of singular way from the Academy. So this could just be the actors voting for what they like. And then once you add everybody else into it, um, because, you know, it's going to be producers, directors, Mm -hmm. uh, publicists voting for this. Carrie could hit different for that collective group than they do for SAG. So I think it's, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I still don't want to subscribe to any sort of looking at precedent or looking back to try to judge this race. Cause if this race at large has taught us anything, it's that you cannot apply anything from the past to this current race.
2: Yeah. Right. And to that point, um, the supporting actress race is another one that I think is chaotic. Um, and I don't think there was any more clarity from last night. I mean, wh- what do you think, where does this stand? This is all this has been the category that's been sort of bamboozling us the whole time. <laughs> we don't know what's <laughs> really going on. Um, but mm-hmm. given the winner from last night, uh, what do you all think?
1: You' Jun Yoon.
2: that?
3: We love her. We love her, love her, love her. I just I think the big takeaway here is to note that it's the first industry awards, not the Globes or Critics' Choice, which is determined mm-hmm. by journalists voted on by people with crossover into the academy where the three front runners, Maria Glenn and um Yoon Yujung actually contested against each other in the same category and Yoon won. So that is where the significance lies, I think, in this matchup.
2: Yoon's right.
1: ahead. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. I think she's out front right now. I think yep. this was a huge win for her. Mm-hmm. Um It was a place where, given the size of SAG, you would think that an actress like Maria Bakalova or Glenn Close, who are both in more widely seen contenders, you know, broader films, uh, would stand the best shot. I don't know that this bodes well at all for their chances particularly. Mm -hmm. I would be looking, frankly, more to an Amanda Seyfried, to spoil at this point, because... Don't even. Don't even. even. Listen, most nominations... Regina King had done it just two years ago. I'm not saying she's going to win. I would predict Yoon pretty confidently right now. But I, I do think that SAG is a place where you would see Glenn or Maria win if, um, if they really were on the path to Oscar. And Amanda didn't really get that test for whatever reason. That's a mark against her that she Slop. didn't get that test.
2: <laughs> we love her. We had her on the podcast.
1: She's so great in Mank. This, yeah. is a, this is a this is a point of disagreement. Here's yeah, our first yeah, argument.
2: David, David's <laughs> provoking right now. If you can see Joey, if you all could see Joey's face, David. Is I know. Provoking I knew right when now. I
1: said her name that Joey was gonna have
2: <laughs> get, some get triggered. Uh, okay,
3: I have to clarify. I love Amanda Seyfried. I think she's really talented. I just was not a fan of Mank. That's it.
2: Really. Yeah. Really? Yeah. I,
3: <laughs> <laughs> I just don't want it to. Th- I just don't want anybody listening to think it's like a personal thing against Amanda. I love Amanda. I've been a fan of her for years, but I just, yeah, this this
1: performance was not it for me. Um. Well, we'll see if Academy members agree.
2: Yeah, the math in this category is pretty strong, though, right? I mean, it has it, in the last ten years, only one has not gone on to win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress,
1: and that was the year that Regina was not even nominated at SAG. Right. Um, the other thing I would note is Joey brought up the Glenn Close example for the wife a couple of years ago. Uh, you know, winning SAG and losing uh, at the Oscars. Glenn had established herself by that point as like the front runner, and that mm. ultimately hurt her to an extent because the film was not that widely liked. Yes, I think in the case of both Ye Jun Yoon and uh, Viola Davis, they kind they didn't come out of nowhere, but they were hardly seen as out front in their races. I think especially you and you, like we knew she was in it. Um, mm-hmm. But the fact that they are, they're making their mark here, um, it puts them on more voters radar as a potential winner in a way they may not have thought about them before. I mean, especially Viola. I really think this does help her because that movie, it's been so Chadwick's story. Yeah. And um, I, I think she got lost a little bit in that conversation and that's not going to happen anymore.
3: Hmm. Yeah, I'm just really surprised that that movie, especially with how much clearly the actors liked it, why it didn't show up in Best Picture. I'm just it's very.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a weird list me. because yeah. One Night in Miami was also closer, I think, because it yeah. got into screenplay and Ma Rainey did not. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was it was very it was very interesting the way that that those Best Picture categories broke so late for The Father and Judas. At the expense of those two movies, but perhaps that is a topic for another day. Yes, um, yes, 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 I think best actor, best supporting actor went as they have gone throughout this race: Chadwick Boseman uh, for Mom Rainey's Black Bottom and Daniel Kaluuya for Judas and the Black Messiah. Those yeah. feel like complete those locks. Races to me are at over. This point. Yeah. Mm-hmm, totally. Uh, I think, especially Daniel uh, winning that was very important because Judas didn't really get a lot of representation at SAG right. otherwise. Um, mm-hmm. So that feels like a done deal to me. Um, but best ensemble. Uh,
3: trial of Chicago
2: Seven, Joey's other Ooh. favorite movie.
1: <laughs> Netflix God. and
3: Joey, match made in heaven. Oh trial of the Chicago Seven, also known as What Are What Are Women? Um, <laughs> women don't exist. Um, I, I, I think. So I think that there is you. The only thing to really read into here is I think that trial is perhaps more of a threat than we thought it would be. I mean, the actors, the biggest branch, most generalized taste, clearly thought this was a brilliant film. has a lot of star power behind it. Its themes about pushing back against, like, corrupt government, and protesting really sort of mean something today. So it's a timely film wrapped in a very dated package. <laughs> the actors are really stroking themselves over this particular movie. So I think it's a lot stronger than we thought, but I, I don't think it's its anything to sort of worry about overtaking No Nomadland.
1: I agree. I don't really think it it is a show of strength, to be honest with you. It feels like a hidden figures win to me, you know, a really broad skewing movie that this group tends to go for far more than the Academy. I mean, the fact Mm -hmm. that Trial lost both WGA and PGA, um, given that I think would really have had to win both of those um, as as to emerge as a challenger. uh, I just I don't see it. I really don't. I don't think that this meant I, I think this could have been an opportunity for Minari to emerge as a challenger, right? And that did so not happen. That it didn't
3: win, yeah. Especially, yeah. I
1: mean, once Yoon won, I, I, was I, was sure old. it yeah. would win. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was
3: that was the bigger shock to me was that not necessarily what did win, but that Minari didn't win because uh, mm-hmm. I thought it was for sure gonna yeah win here. Yeah. But so I'll, that that was just oof.
2: Yeah.
3: Also, an interesting little factoid: Michael Keaton. Fellow icon from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area, <laughs> such as myself, broke a SAG record by becoming the only actor in history to receive three ensemble awards for Spotlight, Birdman, and now wow. Trial*. So shout out yeah. to Pittsburgh Excellence. Me, Michael Keaton, and Christina Aguilera, Pittsburgh Excellence.
2: Oh, that, that is that is a trio. Where's that her
3: SAG makes... award? Burle- burlesque did not come through. <laughs>
2: no. that, best ensemble. That is
3: a true definition of a best ensemble
1: winner.
2: Well, I don't actually I
1: disagree with you on that one. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. can we talk about the the ceremony what what did you all think? I mean, I for one, I thought it was all about Daniel Kaluuya's purple pajamas. Um, <laughs> I just love that that he just walked he, in and he had a lovely weekend. Know, he, yeah, yes totally.
3: Saturday Night yeah. Live and, and this, yeah. <laughs> I, my favorite part was when Helen Mirren, in her Ariana Grande phase with that high pony, saying Pen 15. Pen 15, That was the moment. She's in her Hot Girl Summer phase, Miss Madam the Queen. She's sitting there with her little high pony, talking about Pen Fifteen. That was an amazing moment.
1: And talked about it in a way where she could have gone on for another ten minutes about, Pen 15. like, <laughs> yeah, and yes. probably did, and they edited it out.
3: And they edited
2: out,
1: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just, I loved. The
3: brevity of this uh, pre-recorded thing. I mean, the SAG Awards is usually brief as it is. It's usually, what, like two hours? It's tolerable. It's tight. I love... The usual intro, though, that's like going to different actors at their little tables where they're like, I'm Felicia Rashad and I am an actor. (laughs) actor. And it's just the SAG Awards (laughs) usually just have a knowing sensibility that really leans into the whole actors celebrating actors thing. And it's so absurd and I love it. And that was slightly missing, I think, on this very produced, pre-recorded version. But it was brief and sweet, to the point, and it still shook up the race in a really big way. So what more can we ask for?
1: I will say, however, um, as a shift to the Oscar ceremony... I don't want to see another Zoom acceptance speech. I just, mm. I can't do it. And I, I feel like these are really great winners. You know, mm-hmm. Daniel Kaluuya deserves to have a stage. Yeah. Well, I think I, they will. I know, they? but well, they, I mean, I, I think that they will. And I'm, I'm saying I'm excited for it, but I'm also just, mm-hmm. I mean, there's been so much back and forth on how it will be in person. The yeah. producers, of course, had to um, relent a little bit on their insistence that, Emerald fennel swim across the Atlantic and <laughs> <laughs> make her make her make her way to Union Station. Um, so in I do in the penguin bloom boat in, in the penguin <laughs> bloom boat with Miami Watson tow. Wait. <laughs> Presenting. I don't know.
2: But if we if we don't have the if we don't have the Zoom acceptance speech, then we don't get the moments like Yanja Young's family member, you know, taking a picture of her in in the well, background. That was, that's well, that was sweet. <laughs> you know, actually, you,
1: you bring up a good point, Clarissa. This was a good example of that because you also had like Viola literally falling out of her chair. And that was <laughs> pretty, pretty nice to see. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there are you do get more intimate moments. But um, I mean, Daniel Kaluuya poking fun at his uh, being on mute at the Golden Globes. <laughs> on Saturday on Saturday Night Live uh, right. was a good reminder of how these things can go wrong. And yeah. I feel like this very strange, very long season deserves not a, a return to normal for a finish, but, a, you know, a kind of a semblance of normalcy, mm-hmm. maybe.
3: And I feel like we'll feel that at the ceremony the way they have it laid out so far. I mean, they're they're trying to do as much in-person as possible. And I think a really good template to look at of what they're perhaps going to try to do is the Grammys. I think the Grammys really got the uh, pandemic awards format down really, really, really well. And it seems like the Academy was already on that planning phase of trying to do as much in-person as possible. So. Um, I think the Grammys really set an interesting precedent that I think we're going to see even after pandemic times. That show was so well put together and it was really engaging. And uh, I think the Oscars are going to follow up and, and do something similar. Yeah, I
1: think so too. Well, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Vanessa Kirby, another Best Actress nominee in an ever complicated category, talks about Pieces of a Woman. Stay with
0: us.
2: Here's our interview with Vanessa Kirby. Enjoy.
1: I'm joined now by Vanessa Kirby. Uh, She stars in Pieces of a Woman and the World to Come. Thank you so much for joining us, Vanessa.
0: Thank you for having me.
1: These uh, two films are are not the lightest of watches, um, Mm. but it's it's quite an impressive uh, moment for you to to have these two movies. They're both really rich and and complicated and... um, You know cinematically really ambitious as well i wanted to start by getting your sense on the process of of making these did you film them back to back um what was that like going from one to the next um Hmm. yeah
0: yeah it's really interesting actually because i literally filmed them back to back and so oh wow and the mona fastfeld who directed world to come and cornell who directed, directed pieces they're really good friends um and so, Mona said it's like these these weird sister productions, because they're kind of dealing with with grief and um a mother losing her child. and um, so that was quite strange, really. And in world to come, we did winter, we did some summer scenes in August, and then we came back in November and did winter scenes. And so in the interim between those seasons, I was rehearsing pieces of a woman. So it really was a strange crossover.
1: Hmm. <laughs> um, so doing world to come first it's it's obviously a period piece and I love your look in the movie particularly you're, you've got this great hair <laughs> um I'm, what was it like finding your way into that role and then finding your way out of it especially because you're going from this period setting to in pieces of a woman this sort of very harshly contemporary world almost
0: I felt so lucky that they're both such different characters in a way you know I think it would have been really hard if, the, if I'd have been playing Abigail in World to Come, you know. Um, and it was such a pleasure to play Tally because she was one of these people who literally lights up the room and also thinks so expansively. You know, she has such a huge imagination and, and rare for that time when everything is so stifling as a woman and you're literally owned by the man that is chosen for you and by the home that you find yourself in. You're quite literally owned by it. Um, and yet she was someone who you know, instantly on the page, as you thought she, she thinks bigger than the room she's in. And so I got mm. to think such big, beautiful thoughts as her and, and kind of, and she's a dreamer and acting for me has always been about thinking someone else's thoughts. It was amazing to play her because she's just a, a really big life force energy. And then Martha was the opposite. Martha internalizes everything. Yeah. So it was kind of trying to get into the opposite space in a way. And that was a, a kind of an exhilarating challenge really. Um, and so I was very grateful they were really different. It was quite literally like the inverted process.
1: So with pieces, did you film that chronologically? Of course I'm asking because the film begins with its most sort of virtuosic uh, and I think harrowing scene, this, this 30 minute or so, one take, um, which ends quite tragically. What were those first few days like on set? Was that where you started?
0: That is where we started. And Cornell um, wanted, he always said, like, we have to start with the birth. And I completely agree because I, I was like, I, I wouldn't even know how I was going to play the rest of it. Um, not knowing what it was like to have gone through that and to have actually felt that trauma. That then kind of, you know, the rest of the film is someone recovering from. So I knew that he wanted to start with it. And I was pleased about that. Yet also, we knew that we wanted to do it all in one take and it could be up to 30 minutes. We didn't know how long it was going to be, but it was a kind of rough aim. It was obviously like incredibly daunting because we didn't quite know how we were going to do it. But we managed to, we had a couple of days where we literally worked throughout the, the dance of it, essentially. And then the very first morning... We were so nervous. I think none of us slept. And yeah, we turned over on our first take that morning. and We did four the first day, four takes the first day and two the second. And Cornell's used the fourth take for the first day. And it was the best filming experience of my life, actually.
1: It must, I imagine, take quite a bit out of you, though, as well, especially filming so many takes. Um, it, it is one of the most raw and intense scenes I've really ever seen on film.
0: Yeah, it is. But it's also, you know, I think what I was more afraid of is having to like cut and go for a break and, you know, then maybe go into like the final part of the labor, having just had lunch and suddenly it's action <laughs> and you have to go into it, you know, and you just feel yeah, the, totally. you'd feel that um, it wasn't quite real and... I think I was more scared of that. I, I, I haven't given birth myself and I felt like such a duty to every woman that has and every man that has been there witnessing a woman do it. I, I felt like, oh, I have to get this right. Um, and so the idea of doing it all as one long thing, I kind of thought it would just force me to be totally present because you couldn't think about what's just happened or the thing that's about to happen, you know, that you just have to be in the moment. You're literally forced to be. So you kind of surrendered to it and you just let, just let it happen in a way. Right. But I, you know, I started off doing loads of theater. And so I kind of, rem- I know the feeling of doing, I don't know, Street corner desire, which is like pretty much the most <laughs> harrowing, harrowing play ever yeah. written. Um, and having to, after a matinee, be like, we've got an hour and then we've got to go back, we've got to go back to the start. So um, that really helped me.
1: I, w- I was going to ask you about um, your theater background in terms of that scene, because it's at once it is obviously all the way through and you do have to stay in that moment for such a long time before shaking it off. But then it's also so much about the camera and the the mm. claustrophobia of the way Cornell shoots it. Did you find that balance interesting at all? Like that there is that theatrical element of it, but there's it's also such a cinematic sequence.
0: And mm, so technical, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think what helped was um, Benjamin Loeb, who's the, who's the DOP, he was literally with us the whole time, like, on the floor, like, in that scene, but every scene. He held a gimbal, which is, you know, the thing that you kind of, like, balance the camera on a... I don't know the technical term, it, I probably should. <laughs> it is called gimbal, but I don't know how to describe it. Um, but it kind of, you know, hangs off a frame that he has the, to... And, you know, it, it's it's impossible. It's really hard to carry that thing for five minutes, even. So to do it for half an hour straight I know that he was just under as much pressure as we were to not have the wheels come off, you know, but because he was holding it and because he wasn't directing someone else doing it, you know, and Cornell had him on the, um, on like a mic, you know, so he could talk to him and um, was talking to him all the time over it really quietly. He was almost like the fourth character in the, in the scene. So we knew he was there and we could feel him being so present and he was utterly with us in every step and he but I I personally wasn't that aware of where exactly he was I knew there were some moments that I had to hit you know I knew that there was a, a close-up of my hand that I had to make sure when the bath was was um was at the right moment I could feel him feel him coming in I knew you know there's a certain point we kind of had to roughly make it onto the bedroom um and so we knew the, the shape of it but other than that we were just Praying to the film gods that we could, could remotely pull it off. Actually, we certainly did.
1: <laughs> it's interesting because from there, you have to be, as you say, so closed off. And she really is so within herself and, you know, inscrutable almost. In a lot of scenes, it's a tough role overall. there's it a lot of edges to her. She's not, um, she's not always the easiest character to read almost because mm. this, the grief is so deep. How did you find your way through the rest of the film and her journey and, and particularly that internalization of all that pain?
0: Yeah, I remember reading it going, God, this is such an unusual look at grief. And also mm-hmm. because the dates are all broken up, you know, it's September and then it's October and it's just, yeah. you know, December the 21st. But you don't see Christmas. And you don't see New Year, you know. So mm-hmm. I had to imagine all the other times in it. And in a way, in the film, those dates are often like the hardest moments in her life. When the spelling isn't right on the gravestone for a funeral that she hasn't necessarily decided herself or been prepared for or necessarily wants to do it in that way you know or the moment that her husband tries to have sex with her again for the first time after something like that you know that there's these all these really difficult moments in her journey through through grief and I think um, you know I spend a lot of time with women who had lost their children in this way or many women who had lots of miscarriages or and actually, the thing that they all had in common universally was um, it's really hard to talk about, and that actually society finds it really difficult and like really deeply uncomfortable and it's not it's hardly spoken about and The more people I spoke to, the more suddenly it was like actually my friend or my friend or my friend or someone in my family or there was this it almost the once you speak about it, more people kind of come forward and go, "Oh, it's happened to me, I just haven't ever known how to to." describe it or know if people would be open to hearing about it so that um gave me such a perspective I guess on I tried to investigate why that was mm. both within those women and also in society and a lot of them spoke about how you know because it's the baby is in your body and it's come through your body you feel a lot of them said they felt like that there was something that they maybe did you know and perhaps they had done a workout or um, had drunk the wrong thing, you know, all these things that your mind goes to. Um, yeah. And therefore there's a sort of self, um, there's a guilt or a kind of self blame or um, a sense of failure, you know, which which feels like shame. And I think shame is really hard to talk about and articulate. And so you kind of do close off and internalize. And so I, I had to really spend a lot of time with those women to really understand what that felt like to try and begin to understand why Martha is so unreachable to everybody else, you know, as much as everyone tries in their own way, and they're also having their own experiences of grief. This is um, a person who quite literally can't talk about it. Um, and that makes it incredibly lonely.
2: <laughs> That's
0: such a long-winded answer, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I, I think a
1: beautiful answer and, and one that speaks to really the power of this film and this character, because you can see a lot of those considerations, both in your performance and in, in the way the film is made. Um, you know, at times it, it almost reminded me of, of films that aren't really made anymore, like more from 70s, 80s, that, that kind of period of filmmaking. And it was interesting having that in the back of my mind where near the end of the film you have this remarkable scene opposite Ellen Burstyn, who is such an you know icon <laughs> of that era. Um, what was filming that scene like? What was working with her like? And I'm curious if you also felt that way about being in that style of filmmaking.
0: Yeah, I mean, the 70s for me is like my, you know, Gina Rollins is my hero. Um, Mm. Ellen is also one of them. So that was amazing. You know, when she said yes to it and I realised, like, oh god, okay, I'm really gonna have to try, <laughs> try and pull this off for her. And I mean, I've always, I love Cassavetti, so I wanted that kind of idiosyncratic feeling in it anyway. Yeah. And the kind of explosiveness of it, because I realised as well for Martha that although she's not outwardly doesn't seem to be expressing anything inside, it's just the most colossal turmoil and like deepest grief you could ever imagine and so those two things kind of in tandem were um I really had to try and sort of get inside and therefore it was actually such a relief to be able to just scream in a scene <laughs> I was like I find it much easier to express and um, the character I played on The Crown was so expressive and um, I loved it And it was actually way more of my natural I just find it easier, you know. I actually find it really hard yeah. to to hold things in. So it was really challenging feeling the thing but not being able to show it. There were so many times in the scenes with Shia that I just wanted to come back at him, you know, and just be like, <laughs> yeah. you know, as the character, just to go like head to head. But because Martha and her nature and what she's experiencing, I, I literally couldn't. So on that day, I didn't really know how it was going to come out. I knew that it was going to address, she, Martha, all I knew was that Martha was going to be pushed to the point where she she said something that she really felt, you know, but she but she hasn't yeah. up to this point. So I kept thinking, okay, but so it's months and she hasn't said anything about how she feels. So she's going to have to be really pushed. And I think on the day we realized that Ellen would have to say something that would make, you know, Martha break actually. Yeah. And that was that line of um, you'd have your baby in your arms right now if you listen to me, you know. And therefore, I think it had to come to that level to be able to allow the actual rage, you know, and the and the pain to come out. So I just remember screaming in Ellen's face and just being like, I hope that's okay. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but then she just came up with this incredible monologue and I was behind the camera and she was just going and going and going. She was just doing that amazing Ellen thing she does. And you remember her speech in Requiem for a Dream? is just so amazing. Oh, um, yes. And what it was one day. of those moments where you're just like, oh, my God, she's, you know, in her full force. So that was also yeah. like the birth, the same kind of feeling of, oh, this feels, this this moment feels real, you know, which is all you can ever hope for a couple of times mm. in a film sometimes. <laughs> mm. So
1: you mentioned Princess Margaret on The Crown, which is, of course, I'm sure what many of our listeners were, how they were introduced um, to you. I'm curious going from that these two roles really feel like a spe- you know a special kind of moment for you because they are so rich and they're both very different characters as you mentioned did you find after the crown uh, you know a desire to, to find your way into roles like these did did they come easier what was what was that transition like after you finished your run on that show
0: mm. well I felt so lucky with with that show because you know it was we knew we had two seasons and therefore it was 20 hours. And if that was a film, then that character, Margaret would have been in the background smoking a few cigarettes. Totally. (laughs) So the fact that I, that I got to kind of grow up with her and chart her young life, you know, I was desperate to do the latest stuff. I wanted to smash loads of plates and, and scream at Anthony Armstrong jones That amazing Helena has (laughs) got to do that. Um, Yeah. So uh, I knew that I had to kind of set up her, why she turned hard you know and I always thought that person that everyone knows her later on in life is being so bitter and really damaged and I was like but she wouldn't have been like that when she was little so what happened um so it was an amazing journey to do that and so after finishing Margaret I just thought I hadn't ever led a movie before and Pieces is my first lead and that felt so so special and I you know I I was really I felt you know i I'd, I'd watched lots of people do it and I was like really waiting my time and learning loads and trying to absorb how other people do it. And I felt really ready to do it by that point. Um, and it was, again, in both these movies, it had the same feeling as Margaret, Margaret, where you just felt like, oh, there's space to really explore this nature of person. And and really that's what I look for now. And and The Crown, like you said, it was a real benchmark.
1: Between Princess Margaret and Tally and Martha, you, you have characters of with- also, very different looks, and I'm curious how that helps you find your way into role. In this case, I'll ask about world to come, um, and 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 that hair. Like, mm. what a what part of that character, you know, the the appearance helps you find your way in. And, and what were those conversations like with Tally in terms of her look?
0: Yeah, that was Mona Monu when I need her to. I need her to have iconic hair. And I went, How on earth do you do that? <laughs> Interestingly, actually, Margaret uh, really gave me this incredible gift because it really taught me as an actor because she was a character who, you know, really cared about um, aesthetics and had time to and, you know, had the resources to spend a lot of time doing like lots of fittings of dresses and things like that. And so consequently, I was in a lot of fittings and I'm not, not naturally, that's definitely not my forte. And what I learned was with her, I really learned the relationship to um, costume and it is, isn't about um, how you're perceived, right? It's not like, okay, let's choose this costume so that the audience think. It's more, how does this person choose to express parts of themselves somehow, mm, you know? Yeah.
1: Um, well, if The Crown taught you that about um, costuming and, and the sort of importance of that for the character, what did what did Pieces of Woman teach you as an actor?
0: It taught me, it was quite a sustained... Um, the movie is is someone's journey through a really extreme grief. And I guess it taught me to sustain that level of feeling through a long shoot. And also just honestly, I went into it not really knowing how I could feel those things and not show them. And I honestly, even though I was feeling them, I didn't know if the camera was reading it, really, you know, right, I was thinking all her thoughts, I was really feeling it inside myself. But at the end of the shoot, I was like, oh my God, what if it just looks like I'm doing nothing, you know? Because that's not necessarily how I have expressed grief or, or might express grief.
1: Sure, um, well, before I let you go, I, I wanted to ask you a little meta question right now. We're here virtually. <laughs> and this is, um, for our Wordist podcast is of course, uh, really the first Oscar season that you've been, you've been walking through in this way. I'm just curious what the experience has been like for you, you know, talking to people like me, <laughs> over Zoom, not necessarily going, jumping from event to event like we would normally do. Um, has it been given the attention a little, a little strange?
0: Um, yes. I mean, I'd much rather be in a room <laughs> with you, you know. Um, yeah. But equally, I... Yeah, I've, I've never had this experience before. I'm so deeply grateful that people want to talk about the film because I think it's so amazing and important that we're even having the conversations about the subject and the fact that it's not often talked about. So it's, it's all been virtual for me this year. Of course, I'd love to be with you in person. It's always better. But it's the way of, of things at the moment, isn't it? And the fact that this the film is coming on Netflix hopefully means that more people will be able to see it or people that might need to.
1: I think it'll find its audience, and I I hope the world to come does as well. Mm. Vanessa Kirby, thank you so much. Thank you, David.
2: Experts make mistakes, even the awardists. So we're tracking our own progress on this chaotic awards journey by admitting what we're wrong about in our predictions and gloating about what we're right about. This week, it's the SAG Awards. Joey, let's start with you. What were you right about and what were you wrong about with SAG?
3: Um. I mean, sadly, wrong about Carrie and Maria and Minari winning ensemble. I think those are the big things um but Chadwick and daniel uh definitely got that right because that is all locked up, but yeah, those unfortunate ladies um and actress and supporting
1: actress that's what I was very wrong about David? i'm g- I'm gonna take a moment for myself to sort of. Ap- Admire the fact that I was for so long confident in Chadwick Boseman and Daniel Kaluuya. And here they are <laughs> remaining the front runners. He is,
2: he <laughs> no, is I'm, good. Good. I'm just taking
1: a moment. <laughs> um, but no, uh, like Joey, I was completely wrong on the actress side. Um, I did I did have a, uh, a Viola feeling a couple days ago, but I certainly did not go far enough to predict her.
3: Oh, and you certainly
1: uh, kept it to yourself. So and I have no s- way of verifying <laughs> if this is true or not.
2: Maybe my text
1: just didn't send. No, it was not. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, never, I never put into writing that Viola Davis could win Best Actress. It. <laughs>
2: it,
1: it stayed in here. Yeah. Um, however, uh, I was completely wrong about that. And I think for Best Supporting Actress, um, we were definitely wrong. Mm. I think we were overall maybe wrong. It these actress categories have been so confusing. I, mm-hmm. I feel like mm-hmm. you really if you looked at them and the way they were progressing, Maria and Carrie looked pretty clearly like yeah. the people on the path, yeah. just based on how the films were doing and the passion behind the performances. Um so I, I think more broadly, beyond the SAG awards, we were we were wrong about both lead and supporting actress and, and where those categories were heading. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, 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 and well, we don't I, know where they're heading now. To be clear,
2: <laughs> yeah, Mm-mm. yeah, I was wrong about Minari because I really, I don't know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think that Trial of Chicago Seven would get this, um, or maybe I was just hoping that would be Minari. I thought it would be more of a threat, maybe going into Oscars for Nomadland. So I was, I was a bit bummed about that. I think um, Parasite
1: clouded our judgment because
2: yeah, tag
1: typically trial is more of a sag pick. It just, yeah, it really is.
2: True, true.
3: And it was at the back of all of our minds, being like, yes, trial is probably going to win this but um i think that we were all sort of wishfully uh putting minari out there maybe against better judgment um because trial it just has i mean the sheer number of of well-known and and beloved actors in that um Mm -hmm. yeah it's just undeniable
2: Mm -hmm. right right i mean the one thing i was right about was that jason sudeikis uh continued his casual wear um, with his sweater. his he didn't wear a hoodie, but he did wear he did wear a sweater this time. Uh, did not put on a suit, so I think I think that was one thing I was I was right about. Well, that's all for us today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Awardist, and thanks to Joey for sharing his expertise on the awards race with us. Make sure to subscribe and listen along every week throughout award season wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, tell us what you think, share this series with your friends. Keep up with our daily awards updates on ewcom slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race. And follow me on Twitter at Clarissa NYC1, David at David Canfield 97 and Joey at Joey Nofley. We'll be back soon for more Oscar previews with interviews with more leading contenders. Thanks for listening. This has been The Awardist.